podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, a sombre start to the programme today because we're mourning the tragic passing of Ruth Strauss, wife of Andrew Strauss, in Australia over the last couple of days, aged just 46, leaving two sons of 13 and 10 and, of course, her husband as well. What a tragic loss. And uh, a woman that I knew pretty well, actually, uh, worked a lot with both Strausses in the sort of early 2000s when Andrew was coming into the England team and got to know Ruth. I think she had an incredible influence on Andrew. Uh, they, they got married in the early 2000s, met in the late 90s, and I just think he, uh, she gave him discipline, she gave him optimism, she gave him a structure to his life. He was a bit of a disorganised sort of student, actually, uh, when he first came out of Durham University and came into the Middlesex team, and she just got, got him organised, I think, and, and gave him a lot of strength and a lot of self-belief. Uh, she was a wonderful woman to be around, and charismatic. She was very much the, the, almost the sort of alpha female of the English players' wives, but not in an ostentatious way, just in a very caring way, uh, often sort of organising the, the group at test matches, and but not seeking any kind of publicity. It's funny because I once tried to get Strauss and, uh, and his wife to do a, a sort of story around the ashes because of course she was Australian and he was the England captain and what a fascinating kind of combination that was the English captain married to an Australian so I wanted to try and portray their lives and she just didn't want any publicity Mm. they never courted the 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 tabloids or the you know hello magazine or anything like that for any any reasons they had quite a sort of private life but she was incredibly talented as well and I, I found interest in her other career as an actress because I come from an acting background so I actually went to see her show uh, in Islington at the pub the old red line it was called long gone lonesome cowgirls and Andrew actually painted the set which was mainly sky in this little pub theater and she it was a one woman show she did the whole thing singing dancing acting uh, you know reciting lines it lasted an hour and a half it was really good actually and but she called gave up that career pretty much to to bring up uh, her kids and be Andrew's wife and then Andrew had to give up his England uh, directorship to look after her in in her last months so I mean it's it's such an awful story um I just can't imagine what it must be like for Andrew now with with those two boys yeah that was a lovely tribute that yours your heart goes out to the the Strauss family the two boys left behind now I've I've got a a daughter who's 10 I it's just unimaginable that you know for her to say you know lose a parent and so what, what must what it must be like for those two boys and of course for Andrew as well. I mean, it's it's just a horrible, horrible situation, and you just wish them all the, all the best in the future as they try to come to terms with it and try to deal with it as they grow up. The boys and Andrew as he goes on in his life. Yes, uh, you do. So, so the greatest of sympathy to the Strauss family, and what an extraordinary hand life deals you because you've got these two stars of England's. Ashes of 2011, the captain and the opening batsman, England's most successful opening pair for the last 20 years or so, Strauss and and Cook, with such conflicting emotions that they're experiencing this New Year's Eve, the the loss of the wife on one side, and obviously Alistair Cook's incredible knighthood on the other side. And we asked for you, the listeners, to, to nominate your highlight of the summer, and many of you, uh, I'll name a couple here, Andy Maidment, Matthew Walbridge, David Shepherd, Simon Hall, Chris White, 
and Lyndon Clements and many others. You all named Alistair Cook's 100, his swan song at the Oval, as the highlight of the year. And it's hard to look past that, really. It, it is. It, it was just a remarkable occasion because he'd, he'd been struggling for form. Where was the next run coming from? Well, well, where was the next run coming from? That was why he was retiring, really, when you think about it. He, he, he was really struggling at that level. And to come out and produce that in your last test match, as he said afterwards, you know, fairy tales do come true. And, and it, it, you could see it building as, as the innings went on. You thought, he's going to do it here, he's going to do it. And, of course, remember how he did it with the overthrows as well, uh, which often helps, and, and overthrows at the Oval helped him get to a vital 100 before because he got one against Pakistan. And that, I'm not sure it necessarily kept him in the side, because I think the selectors always believed in him. But then the, the next thing, of course, that winter, he went to Australia and scored those 770-odd runs that helped England win in Australia for the first time for goodness how, how long. And it was an incredible occasion at the Oval. It was essentially a dead test match, but it actually felt like, in a way, it felt like the most vital test match of the summer. It was nice also that he left it sort of poised overnight because he was about 40-odd not out yeah. in that second innings. And that allowed those uh, sort of disciples of Cook, you know, the, his subjects, the people who absolutely love him, to come up, roll up the following morning mm. to the Oval. I mean, I had friends that just wanted to hear the ovation as he walked out to the middle. They didn't mind if he didn't get any more runs. They just wanted to see that that, ex- that last time of him walking out to bat um, as a sort of symbol of... English defiance, I suppose. And so they all flocked in, didn't they? And it was virtually packed at, on 11 o'clock yeah. start. Yeah. I actually missed it. I, I, missed, oh the, I missed the moment. Did you? Well, you I went I, to the loo or something. Well, I, I was going to just go downstairs. The, the reason was because I heard uh, Daniel Norcross, who was commentating on Test Match Special, say, you know, Cook guys that down to third man for a single. I thought I got a chance to nip downstairs. Cause, and then because the next thing I heard was a roar because of the overthrows. You know, you got... You, he got there with overthrows, so mm. I actually missed the moment. <laughs> this is sort of quite typical of typical of cricket grounds, perhaps in the past more than now. I think because attitudes have changed. But I, there's a little balcony outside the Test match special box at the Oval, and it's for sort of corporate people. Mm. But I just wanted to go outside and stand there for a moment, just listen to the noise. It was incredible, the roar and the, the two the, minutes. The, I think. The, yeah, the constant sort of applause. Mm. And I went to stand outside, and there was a steward who said to me, "No, you can't come out here. You've got to, you've got to go back inside." <laughs> and I, I actually pretended tended to not hear, um, but in the end, I was sort of shoved back inside the box. Oh, they've moved, the, <laughs> they've moved the nasty, cynical stewards from Lords to the Oval. It sounds like. Oh, that's a shame. But it, I was actually sat with uh, Joe Root's grandfather, Donald, and uh, it, he was quite overcome by it. Actually, mm. uh, you know, even though it wasn't his grandson, obviously it was Alistair Cook making the hundred, and Joe Root was out there and subsequently made a hundred himself. But there was a tear in. Don Root's eye, I reckon, actually. And he was a, he's been through the, the mill. He's, he, he's lived a life, and he was quite sort of taken with it all, actually. And it was just extraordinary. And, well, well played to, to Alistair Cook that just left us with that wonderful moment. I mean, for me, being at the Oval 2005, when England won the Ashes under, under Michael Vaughan, 18 years' time, you know, that elapsed before they'd, since they'd done that. I, I, and the, the hairs were standing on the, up on the back of my neck, partly because I haven't got any on my head, obviously. Uh, <laughs> That was that was an incredible moving moment and the, the land of hope and glory singing from the crowd and stuff. And really, the Alistair Cook uh, 100 on his last appearance was up there uh, for, for the sort of power and emotion of it. It was 
It was terrific. Yeah, of course. Don't forget that that test match also threw up another memorable moment. And you asked me about my most memorable moment of the year. I think, I, in a strange way, I might have to go for Jimmy Anderson's record-breaking wicket, his, his 564th wicket. Not not least, because I was actually commentating at the time. And so you, you, you're caught up with the emotion, and you could, you could see it building. The last wicket, Sam Curran bowled the previous over, and you, you could sense in the crowd... He, Sam Curran looked des- was desperate to get a wicket, but he was about the only person in the ground who was desperate for him to get a wicket. Yeah, everyone wanted Anderson to bowl that over, mm. to have a chance to t- take the, the final Indian wicket and, and break the record as well. So you could, you could feel it building. And when he did it, it, it was a great moment. Really, really wonderful moment for him. And all, you know, all, those, all that effort he's put in over the years, sort of thousands of balls he's, he's bowled out in the middle, out, out in the nets, to, just that huge climax at the end. The winning wicket is your record-breaking wicket right at the end of the summer in front of a big crowd at the Oval. I interviewed Anderson, actually, uh, about uh, two tests before that moment, and I talked to him about his up-and-down career. And let's just hear a little bit of his interview there, because he's interesting, the way he talked about his anxieties that he had early in his career. The mental side of the game has been a big thing for me and and getting my head right before each game, because I I always thought... um, you know whether it was a lack of confidence or lack of self belief. I thought if I had a good game, one game, then, or if I had two good games in a row, then I'm, I'm due to have a bad game. And it's taken me a while to figure out that actually, I don't have. You know, you can have a good game every time you go out there and bowl. So having that sort of switch in mentality has helped me, and um, that's come in the last sort of five or six years, where I think everything's just fallen into place. Like you say, just something's just everything's just clicked together at the same time. My head's in a good spot. Um, my action is as good as it ever has been, uh, and my skills are as, as good as they have been. I feel confident bowling in all conditions. Is it about, do you think, um, I always felt when, when you were sort of, you know, in your mid-twenties and late-twenties, you may be worried about whether the ball would swing on a daily basis, and on certain days when, it, for some strange reason, it doesn't swing, mm. you know, you're still trying to bowl the same ball and it's not as effective, and therefore you have that sort of anxiety that oh, it's not swinging today, there must be something wrong with my action, yeah. therefore I need to be doing something different, and that just messes you up completely. Yeah, but and then again, it took me a while to figure out that some days it just doesn't swing at all, or as much as you'd want it to. Um, and I think what the anxiety I used to get was that I didn't have anything to fall back on. Once the ball wasn't swinging, I didn't have... Um, you know, I, I wasn't great at holding length, um, but since, you know, just... Again, it's with work and practice and um, just re- the repetition of bowling. I think that's really helped me. You know, now I'm, I go into a game confident that if if it's the flattest pitch in the world, I know I can go at one and over if I if I have to set in the right field and bowl in the right lengths and stuff like that. So I feel like I can I can compete in all conditions. Of course, Anderson had a, a pretty decent Ashes actually before last summer's successes, but it couldn't be backed up. By anybody else, I suppose. He, I mean, he did okay in, in on those Australian pitches, but you knew you were there for the whole series, mm. and it, just the tail end of it was in 2018. Yeah, that's right. And it was pretty, pretty poor show, wasn't it? Oh, it was. It was, it was, re- it was really hard in a way to, to sort of get yourself up. You're in the commentary box. England of what were they three nil down going to Sydney the last Test match, and the, the, the Ashes were done again, and then in Australia, the two Marsh brothers came out and made. Hundreds. Australia was on fet. You know they were really enjoying it. I remember actually interviewing 
Jimmy Anderson, who had to stand in for Joe Root after the match had finished because Joe Root was so sick and had to retire hurt. Anderson had to sort of explain away the, the team's defeat. So England have had a sort of a very poor first bit of the year and a, and a very good second half of the year. The test team, anyway, the one-day side, has been magnificent all year. You think about Sydney and them getting crushed by Australia at Sydney. There was another Nadir to come. And that was 58 all out in, in Auckland in the day-night test. They were, they were bowled yeah. out in a session. They were bowled out before lunch on the first day for 58. So they've mm. had, you know, the testing had a terrible first half of the year and then a brilliant second half of the year. And there's a sort of new selection panel, new mm. names have come in, uh, not least Sam Curran, who had a great summer, of course. And then towards the end, Rory Burns helped them win in, in Sri Lanka. The one-day team, they're absolutely Magnificent, and they've just—they've just been a pleasure to watch. Although, you know, we talk about moments of the year. I'll, I'll never forget going to Edinburgh and watching England lose to Scotland. A brilliant day's cricket, and anyone who was there will, will remember that for the rest of their lives. Not least if you're Scottish, of course. And, and you want that sort of yeah. thing to happen, don't you? Because you know, we we love cricket, and we're complete sort of cricket evangelists, I suppose, and converts, but. You want other people to buy into our mysterious world, and you that for that you need other countries to to be successful. It can't we can't just rely on nine countries or ten countries being good. We want other countries to be involved, and so to, to potentially rejuvenate or encourage Scottish cricket with a victory like that. Hopefully, down the line, you know, be more involved in the English domestic game or in the the tiers of the international game, and they get more experience, they get better players, and as a result, you know, the, the whole game widens its its reach, its uh, its tentacles, its general influence. Yeah, and one of the amazing things about that game is it often when a minnow beats a you know one of the, the the major players the pitch isn't very good and it's all it's a bit of a leveler but the pitch was an absolute belter and england got smashed everywhere 370 and they i mean they should have won the game i mean they they were in winning positions when they were batting and they they messed it up run outs and some some careless cricket but but what a moment for for scotland that wasn't you know just a shame that they're not going to be in the world cup uh, next summer, which is you know one of one of our huge focuses in in the future. Mm. Uh, we, we asked you, uh, the listeners, for your nominations for uh, highlights of the summer, and Greg Arrand here has uh, identified the appointment of Ed Smith yeah. as chief selector. And the obviously the Scotland game was was a bit of a, a an anomaly, but generally since he's taken over, England have been good, and their you know some of the sort of unusual, slightly left field selections have been incredibly successful. Yeah, and and also some of the batsmen have just been taken out of the team as well. You think of you know, players whose whose careers or international careers might well have ended. Uh, are we going to see James Vince in an England Test team again? We might see him in white ball cricket. Uh, you also think of David Milan, who in the Ashes series last year scored a, a, a f- fantastic hundred at, at Perth. Yeah, he's gone as well. Players like Sam Curran are coming. Don Bess mm. made his debut. Yeah, you know, Jack Leach has been successful in Sri Lanka, and who else is there? Well, obviously folks, Butler. I mean, folks, and folks, Butler. And well, Butler. F- folks, we'll, we'll mention in a minute. But, but Butler, uh, for me, actually, if you overlook the the cook. Hundred, which is hard to do, but certainly second in my list of uh, highlights of the year is Josh Butler's maiden Test hundred at Trent Bridge. Somebody who uh, I just love the way he plays the game. He's very self-effacing. 
he's a self-deprecating, he's, he's not a showman, but he's just a phenomenal player. And he's obviously come through the one-day route. I remember the, the first time he played for England in a T20, and he, he played all his funky shots, and he had absolutely, he was absolutely fearless. But he's been through a, a, a period of, of having to reassess his own game. I think probably that the experience of playing at the Rajasthan Royals in April and May in the IPL really helped him get a bit more self-belief. And I know Shane Warne talked to him about you can do this in test cricket just as well as you can do it in one-day cricket, T20 cricket. But you still have to actually get out there and do it yourself. And to, to get that 100, which was a very well-constructed innings, a lot of boundaries, but a lot of caution and, and respect for the bowling as well against India... You know, a decent attack, I thought was a, was a wonderful moment. And, you know, quite an understated way in which he celebrated it, really. But you could tell from... He, he's a he's a quiet guy, basically. I mean, I think on the field, he's quite sly with a few comments when necessary to opposing batsmen. He's not just a complete angel. But I think he just has a wonderful image. He doesn't do anything for himself. He, he does everything for the team. He puts himself very much last and I just think he's a he's a fantastic role model and how he hits the ball without extravagant power particularly in terms of muscles I don't mean I mean obviously he hits the ball hard but he does it with hand speed with with a kind of a, a very aesthetic style um just with with, with beautiful balance timing placement and, and this incredible ambition as well, this ability to to hit the ball in all directions and almost almost know where the bowl is going to bowl as well and and try and premeditate but but premeditate in an incredibly effective and and very watchable way. Well, you mentioned his hundred at, at Trent Bridge in the Test match. What about his hundred Old Trafford in, in that one day game against Australia on a yeah. broiling hot day? And he, I think he's just got that sort of that. Ice in his veins. Mm. He's absolutely ruthless as a batsman. And England just got home. I mean, it didn't matter as far as the series is concerned because England were always going to win the series. In fact, I think they'd already won it off the top of my head. But they wanted to win 5 0 against Australia, make a you know, real strong statement. And they, they, they stumbled and fumbled their way to that small Australian total. But Butler absolutely ice cool in, in the heat of, of Old Trafford. I don't often say that about Manchester, do we? The heat of Old Trafford that day. Fantastic innings. So you, 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 you're right to mention Trent Bridge breakthrough hundred in, in Test cricket, but and what, what a player he is in in one day cricket as well. And, and not doing badly in the, in the big bash. At no, the moment no, he's either. made a good start. Yeah, I, I, I think he'd be quite relieved actually because yeah. I know last Christmas he was in his home Somerset village, uh, and he went to the local church. I think either on Christmas Day or on Boxing Day, and nobody recognised him yeah. at all. So uh, it, it's that's quite it's nice though, isn't it? Well, I mean, maybe it you know, is. Virat Kohli, if he wants to do something similar to that, you know, no privacy at all. I mean, it's quite, it's quite actually quite nice. But I, I take your point that you know he really has an, had an amazing year, and every you know everybody. Knows who he is now. Well, it sort of underlines. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure they do. I mean, it, it underlines Graham Swan's point in Strictly that uh, cricket is a, a minority sport to him now. That yeah, he's realised yeah, that yeah. he gets recognised in the uh, the co-op for having been on Strictly, whereas nobody yeah, knew him before, yeah. sort of thing. So, it, it, unfortunately, the game. The, you know, the, our star mm. players, most of whom, starting mm. with Cook, have played only on satellite TV behind a paywall, are not household faces they might their names might be familiar but their faces aren't no i reckon though i reckon that actually it, it's it's much nicer to, to have that 
anonymity, yes, but maybe. I suppose success in in the area in which you, you know you're recognised for. So among your teammates, among spectators, and probably commercially as well to you know, to get the big deals. But actually, it's just a bit of walk down the street and no one recognise you. I think it must be actually quite nice. I mean, there, there'll be some people who don't <laughs> think that. No, well, I, I'm not going to name right. names, but there'll be one or two yes. who you know, want to be recognised. Yes, but actually. Anonymity is quite a nice thing. And actually, I, I, you know, in a way, this knighthood to Cook, which was going back to where we started, in a way, will be probably not necessarily welcome in the Cook household because he likes anonymity. Yeah. He, never, he never went on social media, Twitter or anything. He likes a private life on his farm in Bedfordshire. And suddenly, you know, having the, the old sword of, of, the, of Her Majesty on his shoulder and lots of pictures... Uh, there's no escape now, Cookie. I'm afraid you are you are a big personality, uh, and congratulations anyway to to all you've achieved. Um, well, just one or two other uh, highlights of the year. I, I quite like uh, Simon Hancock here, who says the highlight of the year for him was Jack Leach and him shouting "Court Butler, bold Leach" yeah. after getting a wicket in Sri Lanka. What a turnaround for him! A wicket summer. made in Taunton. Yes, yeah. yes, quite. Uh, the the uh, Giddy Hilkovitz says Sam Curran's batting, yeah. constantly reviving England from difficult situations. Um, well, it's another, I mean, another one of Ed Smith's, isn't it? That, that, or, or the selection panel, anyway. I mean, uh, brilliant summer. He was, he was you know, the man of the series yeah. against India. He t- actually took the winning wicket as well. To, Anderson took the winning wicket in the final test match, but Curran took the winning wicket to win them the series down in, in Southampton. And it, so not just his batting, but also his bowling, but mainly his batting. It's fascinating to see how his career develops, what he's going to develop into. I mean, he's got fantastic attitude. And mm. He's got yeah. a lot ahead of him, and the IPL mm. have picked him up as well for, for lots of money. Yes, when I he... hope he buys his mum a... We had, we had his mum on <laughs> this show, right. didn't we? I hope he buys his mum a nice present after his, <laughs> his contract, uh, what, for about 600,000 quid or something? <laughs> He's well, got to clear up all those apples in his in the in the garden. Yes, he he to, they used to chuck at the tree rather than collect. <laughs> um, there's also um, Derek Butcher, who who's pointed out, and this one touches my old heartstrings a bit. Resurgence of Kent, because of course that was my first yeah. county. Well, that back. was a revelation this year. Ten, I thought you were ages. a Middlesex man yeah. through and through, but you supported Kent. I supported Kent when I was a kid because yeah. I always used to go there on holiday. Uh, didn't win anything. Best win ratio of any county. Yeah. So. Well done to the Sam Billingses and Darren Stevens and people like that down at Kent. Paul Downton. And Joe Denley as Joe well. Joe Denley, of course. Yeah. Paul Downton taken over as director yeah. of cricket there after a miserable couple of years in, in charge of England and, and getting rather kind of uh, demoted and, and sacked there. So uh, good luck to, to, to them next year in the first division. Mm. And, and you know, well done for, for all they've achieved, actually, because it's one of those counties that... It's a huge county with lots of cricket, and they've been rather neglected and forgotten, but now they're back. Another big moment of the year, whether it's a highlight of the year, it might be for actually for England cricket fans, certainly not for Australian cricket fans, the whole sandpaper issue mm. in South Africa, which has dominated Australian cricket. I think they're still feeling the, the, the fallout from it. it uh, India 2-1 up after three test matches in the, in the series down under. Three matches won by the team batting first on pitches that probably have you know got worse got harder to bat on as the game has gone on a bit of old-fashioned Indian nice really knowing how to win test matches it's sort of the way they play in the last game strikes me is how they have played at home you know you, you dig in you don't necessarily score particularly quickly in the first day or two but you make sure you get a decent score on the board and then you get to work with the bowlers it must have been a 
must have been a really tedious day, that Boxing Day. 215 for two, was it? You know, the big crowd turns up and you don't really want to watch that. But the ends, I suppose, for India justified the means. They got a decent score and went on to win the game. Mm, and now they're poised to win their first ever Test Series in Australia. And actually, that brings me on to, for, my, for me, and this is a, a negative, I suppose, but the quote of the year has to be, for me, Cameron Bancroft saying when he was quizzed about the, the sandpaper gate, I didn't know any better. Mm. And I just I just find that so difficult to understand. In the same way as I found it hard to understand when Mohamed Amir said, what could I do? You know, I was told to bowl no balls by my captain. I had no choice. Surely you understand the difference between right and wrong. And th- th- there seems to be just this complete sort of moral vacuum in the Australian cricket circles where you think, well, I didn't know any better than to scratch the ball with sandpaper. I mean, what do they teach people at academies? This isn't a six-year-old son of a hermit talking, is it? I mean, this is a a fully-fledged professional cricketer who's been through the mill, he's played a few test matches, he's 25 years old, then he was, he's now 26. I see he got third baller, poor chap, in first game back for the Big Bash. But just, I just can't believe a player saying... I, it's like yeah. saying, well, why did you put your finger in the fire when my brother told me to? Yeah. I mean, it's pathetic. I'm, I'm afraid it's pathetic. It's more manure dumped on the head of David Warner, isn't it? Really. Mm. He, he, was, he was to blame. Is but the, it's sad that yeah, a player yeah. would give in to that. You know, that, you know that it's wrong. I, I, didn't, I didn't know any better. What? Yeah. I mean, you do know better, surely. Mm. You don't. A player comes up to you and says, "Scratch the ball with sandpaper." Surely, you know that's a, against the laws of the game, and you're not going to be able to get away with it with 38 cameras watching you. I've got nothing further to add on that, Yozer. I think you you you've said it all absolutely right. Right. Well, let's pause there. After the break, we're going to look at some of the other highlights of the year, including some of the podcast highlights. Welcome back to the Analyst Inside Cricket. This is one of over 50 episodes that we brought you in 2018 and the start of 2019 as well. And we're going to look back at some of our highlights of the year and some of the things that really caught our attention. And one thing that which caught my attention back in, in April is when we in, interviewed Dan Weston, who is a, a stats guru, really. He looks at his stats and says, you know, basically this person should be playing and this person shouldn't be playing. And, and stats and analytics in, in cricket begin to take over more and more and more, especially in, in, in T20, but also, of course, in, in other forms of the game as well, in one-day cricket and, and test cricket. And it was interesting to, to speak to Dan. And actually, looking back now from late December, early January, back to April, when he was actually talking about who he thinks the England selectors should be picking. And he, he comes on to that in just a moment. But I, I started by asking him, you know, what, what should the selectors use? Should they use their, their cricket eye, if you like, or should they just focus on a player's stats? It's a mixed bag, really. I think that, that there's definitely room for them to work in conjunction with each other. And I, and I think that's the ideal situation, really. So, for example, stats and data working with working with that experienced eye test from, from a director of cricket or a franchise owner or, or, or a coach is, is the ideal scenario. Personally, I think that the eye test can be very biased in terms of selection of players and, and being seduced by aesthetics, whereas... The data probably likes some of the unfashionable names. I think when they're married together, that's probably the most powerful combination. 
give me some examples then. Players who you think are, are overrated according to your stats and some players who are underrated according to your stats. OK, well, overrated players according to, to my algorithm. Uh, James Vince, David Milan, Moeen Ali, Butler to a certain extent, although the sample size for him is quite small in, in Red Bull cricket. Um, perhaps because he hasn't been playing and England have been doing relatively poorly, people want him back more because he hasn't he hasn't been around for or available or selected. Players in county cricket as well, I think probably could do a, a bit of a better job than the likes of Vince, Sam Northeast, Liam Livingston, uh, Ben Folks, whose who's batting has really come on quite well, and um, Burns at Surrey as well, I think, I think could, could be ones who would be potential replacements. OK, some names there given to us by Dan Weston back in April, and the likes of Folks, who had a fantastic series in Sri Lanka, you know, featuring highly in his stats. I mean, of course, as a, as a coach as well as a selector, you know, Ben Folks was obviously on the radar, um, Butler, he was a bit cautious about, but he did make the point that you know there weren't that many Red Bull stats to go on, and, and that's where I mean, Ed Smith really went out on a limb for Butler, didn't he? he and he, he actually said that in an interview at the end of the summer. He's like, well, he should have said that. I'm not so sure because he sort of won that collective cabinet responsibility, but he really said, look, I wanted him. This is the player I really wanted. Um, so you know that's a that's a sort of cricket eye decision isn't it really I mean, just working with Ed you know he was always he always loved Butler mm. and you know he, he got his way and it worked and and Rory Burns as well Dan mentioned there has, has got in the side and he was talking about some of the players that England actually have, have jettisoned as well like James Vince although you know you, you can make a you could have made a very good case out for that at the start of the summer anyway couldn't you I know that actually that Ed and and Dan had a conversation before the first test team was announced which First England, test team of the summer. Yeah, I, I know. They, I think they had a private conversation. I don't know how often they talked after that. Uh, that was, of course, the test England lost against uh, Pakistan mm. at Lords, uh, where Mohammad Abbas uh, worked his magic. But uh, it was, uh, I, in a way, not surprising to me that Ed had talked to Dan because one of the questions that the selection panel, or rather the panel selecting the chief selector, which included the aforementioned Andrew Strauss talked about was is selection art or science and that was a question that that the various candidates who wanted to be chief selector had to answer and I can imagine Ed would have come up with a very articulate and probably quite intellectual uh, answer there which would have been art and science and he used both Mm. in his uh, selections of, of the players over the summer and I mean England Beating, I thought, well, they finally drew, obviously drew that series against Pakistan and beat India 4 1 and um, beat Sri Lanka 3 0. So the, the test side has, has, has revived themselves. Um, the one day side has gone from strength to strength. Some uh, correspondents I know picked out um, Jason Roy and his 180 at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in the one-day yeah. internationals very early on in the year as a highlight of the year. Uh, the, the record score by a, an international batsman on the MCG in a one-day game. Uh, so that was that was tremendous. But for me, actually, um, one of the interviews I enjoyed uh, the most was a man who, I suppose, is almost a bit of a, an anachronism, um, Raul Dravid, now the coach of India A., and who, of course, faced more dot balls in Test cricket than anyone. And uh, you know, what the, the thing about him is he's he's sort of grappling with the modern era of batsmen, and now looking after some incredibly talented young players like uh, Rishabh Pant. Mm. We, we've seen 
uh, playing in, in the series in Australia as well as England. Um, Pritvi Shaw, the young player who made a Test 100 on his debut against the West Indies. Argawal is now playing yeah. in this Test match. And he's grappling with these sort of spirited young players who all just want to belt everything for four mm. and six. So I, I, I enjoyed actually talking to Dravid about the art of coaching modern batsmen, especially in the light of watching Alistair Cook playing for England Lions against India A, making 180 and batting all day. What would your sort of younger generation of batsmen have, have gleaned from that? What would you hope they would have gleaned from it? You know, I'd really hope that they gleaned um, the fact that um, here was someone who recognised very, very quickly that this is a flat wicket, you know, and um, if I bat the whole day, I'm going to get a, a pretty decent score here. Uh, I don't have to score all my runs in the first session. You know, I can do it over three sessions. I have three sessions to do this. Um, just because it's flat, flat, I don't have to be playing all the shots in the book. Um, I know what my strengths are. I know um, the areas I'm very strong and where I can, I'm confident I can score in. And, and just construct an innings and enjoy doing what he did. And I'm sure there's a, there's a level of satisfaction that Alistair Cook would have got from yesterday's innings. I know it's a flat wicket and maybe didn't challenge him as much as, say, some of his test innings might have or a, or a hundred at Perth might have. But there's a level of satisfaction that someone like him you know, gets from doing this. And that's something I find sometimes young players today, they, they get satisfied only when they hit boundaries or sixes or fours or they're scoring at a particular rate. You know, And, uh, and that's... If you want to bat become Alistair Cook and bat for that long period of time and have a, that long a career in the in the red ball game um, then I think you need to have days like this as well where you actually enjoy batting the whole day and it's uh, you know I loved it I love batting the whole day but sometimes in the fast paced world that we live in and the amount of one day cricket they practice sometimes I, I, I sometimes wonder if some of the boys actually ever get satisfaction from a good leave you know they want to hit everything in the middle of the bat or they want to hit boundaries and only that gives them satisfaction well, that's Raul Dravid. What about Rishabh Pant? Do you think he enjoys a good leave? He doesn't look as if he does. I mean, he enjoys a good chat from behind the stumps, well, but I'm not, sure, I'm not sure he really likes leaving the ball. Very I mean, it's, it's sort of manna from heaven, the turning up of the stump mics, yeah. isn't it, in the, the current series, which is a Fox Sport initiative. And it's caused a lot of comment. And mm. I'm sure maybe, you know, one of the criteria, we're talking about selection, one of the criteria for selecting your wicketkeeper now is they've got to be quite smart and make some acerbic comments which are not inflammatory but do have an effect I mean it was quite interesting listening to Tim Payne the other day talking about uh, Rishabh Pant and would you like to babysit and uh, we come and play for the Hobart Hurricanes yeah come and play for the Hobart Hurricanes we can get you a nice apartment overlooking the water and you you know can you babysit (laughs) and after two balls later Pant goes for a big slog and nearly gets caught a long off quite mind you mind you that's going to happen in Rich Bad Pants innings quite yes. regularly, isn't it? Where he goes through. You probably don't need to inside. No, that. you don't. I mean, he's going to do it anyway because that's the way he plays. I mean, yeah. he's a fabulous young talent. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, anyway, I, I did quite enjoy his little bit of commentary when Tim Payne was batting. You got a special guest today. Come on, monkey. You got a special guest, huh? Have you heard the word temporary captain ever? Have you heard anything like temporary captain ever? Come on, let's. You don't need anything to get him out, boy. Why? No, no! He loves to talk. That's the only thing he can do, boy. Only talking, talking! 
So it's not everybody's cup of tea, I suppose, this banter going on. It's better than swearing, though. Yeah. The odds, isn't it? Yeah, everyone just having a go at each other, swearing and snarling at everyone. Well, I, I think, think it's just making good more... use. I think it's making good use of the stump mics as well. If it's quite creative and adds a little bit of fun to the commentary, the mm. commentators can feed off it mm. a bit as well. And it just gets you a little bit closer to the action. So, yeah, I quite, I quite like it personally. I, I don't mind. I, I prefer, I much prefer that. Thinking creatively about what you're going to say to a batsman. If, if you cannot resist saying something, at least be creative and be funny and witty or yeah. go go along the, the pain and pant line rather than just snarling. Yeah, well, it, it's, actually, it goes back to the, the great Flintoff line, mind the windows, yeah. Tino, doesn't yeah. it? Which worked pretty well. But, but again, though, I mean, that's the way Tino plays, isn't it? I mean, I'm, it worked in that instance, but he could just as easily hit five sixes like Apple Dev did because that's, that's the way he likes to go. In the same way, that's the way Pant likes to go as well. So this India series is, is interestingly poised, Australia-India. Uh, with one test to go, playing at the Sydney Cricket Ground, beginning on January the 3rd. Obviously, the Indians would expect now to win, I would have thought. I mean, it's, it's hard to Depends come back Depends who wins the toss, Depends who wins the toss. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, we've seen a lot of that recently. Mm. England's matches in Sri Lanka dominated by the toss. England's Sydney vi- as well. England's, a... Yeah, England's victories over India dominated by the toss. Mm. Um, and all three matches have gone with the toss so far in this series. Mm. And, and, and what the teams have done batting first is just making sure you get enough runs on the board. And once you've done that, you, you've really got a great chance. You're right, Sydney have traditionally spun a bit. Last year, not when so we much, were there, not so much. No, it was mm. an absolute belter last year, mm. and Australia just grounding them down. It was mm. a question of, you know, over the course of the series, it sort of steamrolled them, mm. and the Marshes got hundreds, and they, mm. Australia got a massive score. England just couldn't quite cope. Do you know, it. only one Australian century in virtually yeah. 12 months in Test cricket since that Test match in Sydney the Ashes Test match, which finished on January the 8th, I think. Only one Test match hundred by an Australian in nine tests. Usman Khawaja, is that right? Yeah. In in the UAE. Yeah. So they've got some some real problems. But one ex-Australian who made probably about 12 Test hundreds himself called it, he stuck his neck out. When you say ex-Australian, he's not given up being an Australian. <laughs> well, he might, well, he's half English anyway. He? Michael Slater, because he? yeah, his mother I think was a Geordie because right. he he lived in the northeast for a little bit actually, right. and and played up there in club cricket, and he sort of calls himself half Geordie I think. Well, it depends who's doing well yeah. in in the world. Uh, but anyway, Michael Slater, I I interviewed him before the start of this Test series, and he was quite outspoken in who he thought would win. I just think that. Australia at this stage uh, are very much going to miss the Smith-Warner run aggregates that they get most series, which get Australia over the line because there are enough runs for a quality Australian bowling attack to do the job and get 20 wickets. So, look, I see our batting in, in disarray still. I, I'm not confident that we can get the runs. I think if our, our, our quicks stay fit, that's obviously Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins... And then you've got Nathan Lyon, who's the best offie in the world. I think we can get the wickets, but I'm not sure we can get the runs. So my summation is, at this stage, India could win a series in Australia and win it handsomely. That's my prediction. Well, we gave our predictions at the start of the series as well. I, I went for 3-1 Australia, but, I, but not with any great conviction. Actually, the reason I went for that was because you said it was going to be 2-2, and I thought it probably could be, you know, it could be 2-2 in the series, but I thought, well, I'll, I'll go for a point of difference and go for an Australian win, but they, their batting just looks so fallible to yeah. me. Yeah, you know, Peter Hanscom, where he's been dispensed with, Mitchell Marsh, really poor shot in the second innings yeah. at, at, at the MCG, uh, Travis Head as well, you know, he's done well at times, but 
dismissed in the seconds. No foot movement, driving at a ball mm. on, on the up, yeah. inside edge onto his leg Finch, stump. as an open. Finch, yeah, yeah. And, yeah it, it doesn't look convincing. Mm. But I wonder if it's going to continue into next summer or whether they're going to get their act together and get Smith and well, Warner and, and Bancroft back in their lineup. There's every chance they will, mm. and they need them. Certainly, the, the Warner and Smith, anyway. And you actually, you've correctly said at the start of the series, who's going to score the runs, eleven hundred or twelve hundred right. runs that yeah. they made in the Ashes? Yeah, no right. one at the moment. No, and, and if they don't, if someone doesn't come up with a hundred, they've lost the series for the first time to to India ever yeah. in, in Australia. But they did win in Perth. They batted first in Perth, got runs on the board, and India lost by 100, 140 runs. So. Mm. I think the, perhaps the, the toss is going to be... Yeah, important. and I, I, to just get a little bit of credit to the Indian bowlers as well, I, I think Bumrah particularly, I think the way... In fact, Kohli uh, alluded to it in his quotes today, just saying the bowlers have, have their own meetings now and he listens, he doesn't tell them to do anything. He, he admires the way they play, they read the wicket, they read the situation well and uh, he totally trusts them to find ways of, of, of winning matches, especially looking at their influence away from home. I know they lost the series in England, but... Generally, their performances away from home have been better. And if Boomer had played that whole series against England, yeah. he missed the first two tests, it might have been a different story. So, you know, well done to the Indian bowlers. have made a, a great fist of trying to win a series in Australia. Yeah, they've got a very good attack. Well, we should finish, Jos. We should um, give, give out some prize winners, shouldn't we? And then perhaps look ahead to... 2019, what we're hoping for from 2019. And we've got some prize winners. Yeah, now these are the prize winners for the Derek Pringle book uh, that we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, three winners of a signed book by Derek Pringle, Jane Tymon, Eugene McSorley and Alexander Lestrange. So books are either on the way or have arrived to you three. And we also, of course, are doing this Ashes yeah. tickets draw so on the show next week, we'll do the draw for Ashes tickets for the Lord's Test for the Saturday. That's the fourth day of the Lord's Test match. So hopefully you can listen into that. Hopes for 2019. Well, for me, obviously, I hope England win the World Cup for the first time ever. Not just because they've been the best team over the last two years and they play the game in a really attractive and energised way. But actually, just for the for the game as a whole in England, I think that in the way that the 2005 Ashes inspired a whole generation of people to either play or watch cricket, I hope that England winning the 2019 World Cup will do the same because we definitely need more people participating in our great game or just involved and engaged with our great game. Absolutely. What about you? Absolutely. Just on that World Cup, I think I hope that England are able to play the type of cricket that they have been playing, i.e. they don't get inhibited by playing in the World Cup. And perhaps when they get to a semi-final, they're, they're able to play in that way. So I would like to see them get to the final and then whatever happens in the final. You get to the final, it's a great occasion, isn't it? I suppose most of all, though, I just hope the sun shines. What a brilliant summer we had last year. Fantastic weather. And I hope we get something like that because it would be such a shame if the if the weather interrupted what is a brilliant summer ahead with the uh, World Cup, which is going to last for a long time, and then the ashes straight up. Is it too much to hope for the sun to shine for about three months in England? Probably is, especially after last summer. But you're right, it was a wonderful summer. You've still got a tan, actually, although I know <laughs> you're in Sri Lanka, but actually there wasn't much sun in Sri Lanka. It was raining all the time. It's all so, you know, yeah, I, well, I second that. So absolutely right. So those are our hopes for 2019. We'd like to know what yours are. So 
email in to theanalystpodcast at gmail.com what you have as your hopes for the year of 2019, obviously in the cricket world. And one little other tease for you. Can you answer this riddle? This is from Marina Man, aged nearly 11. You're 11 tomorrow, actually. Yes. So give us your riddle. In a forest there's a river, in a river there's a boat, in a boat there's a girl with the green, green coat. And if you don't know her name, you better listen again, because I said it in the middle of the riddle, what's her name? There we mm. go. So you're going to have to listen to the whole podcast again if you didn't get that the first time. Goodness, it, you know, elocution runs in the family then. <laughs> well, actually, it's better from her than it is from you. Anyway, Happy New Year to everyone and have a great 2019. Yep, Happy New Year. Best wishes to everyone. Podcast Network.